does it mean to be a spiritual person? Do you consider yourself to be one? To be a spiritual person? It seems like there's a lot of different ideas out there today about what it means to be spiritual. Certainly in our culture in the last 20 years or so, the Eastern religions have gained popularity due to the fact that they are viewed as exceptionally peaceful and exceptionally spiritual. Some of us, when we think of a spiritual person, immediately get an image in our mind of a certain posture or pose that you think spiritual people have from time to time. And still some of us have thought about the spiritual ones to be the people that isolate themselves from society. Maybe like the desert fathers of old who move into a place of isolation and therefore supposedly removing themselves from the temptations of the world so they can be alone with God on top of the mountain praying and being spiritual. And then there's some of us who maybe intuitively create categories when it comes to Christians in this life. There are those who are the normal Christians, and then there's the really spiritual Christians. And you might use any number of ways to describe those who are truly the super spiritual ones. It could be the spiritual ones are the ones who listen to only Christian radio. I recommend Moody Radio. They abstain from certain foods or drinks. Maybe they dress conservatively or they speak very quietly and very carefully because they're spiritual. But none of these really seem to get to the heart of what it means to be truly spiritual. And actually, some of those depictions drive us away from the idea that we might want to be considered a spiritual person. But here's the thing. It's good to be a spiritual person. In fact, the Bible presents to us again and again and again that it is good for you to be a spiritual person. And we see that specifically in this book of Galatians that we've been going through together for the last number of months. And one of the things I love about Galatians is that it doesn't, it, it shows us that we don't have to wonder what some of the elements of our spirituality are to look like. Because Galatians tells us. In fact, some weeks ago we were in chapter 5, and chapter 5 tells us about life in the Spirit and what that looks like. And now as we move from the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, we see the implications of what it means to be spiritual. Particular implications for you and for the people around you. And so with that framework in mind, let's look together at Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. It's found on page 975 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And this is what it says. Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let let each one test his own work and when his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So in the previous part of chapter 5, we see an encouragement to walk in the Spirit. That is to say, as you go through the days of your life, as you put your faith in the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and the Holy Spirit of God actually indwells you, takes up residence within you, there is a mutual partnership that happens between that Holy Spirit of God and you. God's Spirit is doing work in you, and you are engaging with that work. So, walking in the Spirit generally means to embrace the things of God by the power of that Spirit, and to cast aside or to fight against the desires of sin that is categorized for us all naturally by our flesh. Paul says, walk in the Spirit. And now, verse 25, he says again, live in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And at first glance, you might think, or you might hear those phrases, walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And you might immediately think of some kind of internal feeling or inklings that happen in the life of a Christian. Maybe they only happen when you listen to certain kinds of music. Perhaps you've met someone that uses sort of veiled spiritual language that's kind of difficult to understand, but it sounds good and spiritual, and so they must be living by the Spirit. And of course, there's a struggle here because the Holy Spirit is, well, a spirit. You can't see it. You can't control it, and you can only partially understand it. But to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, has some very practical implications to it. Spiritual people are not necessarily mystical in nature. Spiritual people, you want to be a spiritual person? Spiritual people are wonderfully practical. And the element of this practicality comes in the form of a warning and then in a form of series of encouragements. You want to be a spiritual person? Don't do this, but do this. And that's what Paul says. The first comes in the form of a warning. And the warning is to avoid the glory vacuum. Avoid the glory vacuum. Verse 26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Greek word for conceited literally means vain glory or empty of honor. Conceit is a vain pursuit of glory. It's an insecurity in a person that says, I'm not getting enough glory or honor. You people need to be recognizing me more. And this manifests itself 
in a disposition of superiority. And at the root of this insecurity, that is manifested in being conceited toward others, is this feeling that we have. It's this feeling that we need to prove ourselves again and again and again to those around us. We compare ourselves to each other. And if I prove myself to you, then I can compare myself to you. And if I can compare myself to you, then I can have an elevated standing in light of you. And I am able to perceive myself and believe that all of you perceive me to be better than you. And there's a glory vacuum that sucks up whatever glory we can get. <laughs> because it feels good. Because it feels good to be recognized. Because it feels good to receive honor. Because it, it feels good to have ourselves glorified. I wonder if you remember the old game called King of the Hill. You remember that game? I mean, it's outlawed in like 48 states now or something like that. I think maybe like Alaska and Maine, they can still do that sort of thing. But, you know, many of us grew up playing this old game called King of the Hill. I grew up in Minnesota, and it was a rite of passage in the wintertime to play King of the Hill at recess. You can imagine the cold winter days of Minnesota. The snow plows in the morning had deposited the previous evening's snowfall into this very large and ever-growing mountain in the back corner of the parking lot. Day by day, it got bigger. Week by week, it got bigger. And by the mid-January, I mean, for an 8, 9, 10-year-old kid, this thing looked like Mount Everest. And... School would let out for 25 minutes in the middle of the day to allow the children to stretch their legs and to burn off some calories. And immediately, King of the Hill ensued. You remember the game, right? It's not very complicated. A bunch of kids run toward the mountain. They all try to climb to the top as fast as they possibly can. And the one on top is the King of the Hill. And so... 10, 12, 15, boys and girls alike running toward the mountain, slipping and sliding their way up, but little Jimmy was particularly adept. And he would push Sally's head down, and he would go by little Ralph, and before you know it, he made it to the top. And he stood there, basking in his glory, soaking in the honor yelling at the top of his lungs that he was the king of the hill. And the glory vacuum raged as he sucked in every amount of glory he could possibly have. But for a moment, within mere seconds, the king would be pushed off the side of the mountain and tumble all the way to the ground by another who would ascend. And the glory vacuum again would be turned on for all to see the king of the hill. It's a picture of life. Whether on the playground or 
in the office or in the family structure or in your marriage or in your social construct. Everyone wants to be king of the hill. It doesn't look the same for each one of us, but there are elements where that glory vacuum, when turned on, becomes a powerful, powerful thing. And so Paul says the result of this type of conceit is that it changes our interactions with other people. He says those interactions can be described as provoking or envying. Provoking, two very interesting words, right? Provoking is that feeling of superiority that results in you looking down on someone who you view to be inferior to you. And then it informs the way that you speak to them or you treat them. Envy is... Almost the opposite. It is the feeling of inferiority that results in you looking up in jealousy to the one that you view to be superior to you. And so related to conceit, you have these actions of those who have superiority complexes and those who have inferiority complexes. And both of those are trying to gain their worth, to gain their honor, to gain their personal glory through competition or through proving themselves to others around them. But Paul brings this up because this is a way of categorizing our life and our interactions with people. And it's almost as if he's saying right in the middle of this, remember the gospel. Remember how your life, if you are a spiritual person, how your whole life changes, and that means your interactions change. Remember, where your worth is truly found, Galatians chapter 2 says that we've heard it again and again, that there's nothing that we do, there's no works of our hands, there's no religious rituals in our lives that give us worth and value and honor before God. We're justified before God because of what of Jesus does, because of the works of his body, because of the religious rituals that he fulfilled. So we're justified before God through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the good news of the gospel of God's grace to you and to me. And it changes your identity. And it changes the way that you think about glory and honor. And it changes the way that you interact with other people. And so in Galatians 4, we saw that we have a new standing before God. Our worth, our crown, our glory is not in what we do. Our worth, our crown, our glory is in Christ. And therefore God makes us adopted sons and he gives us an eternal inheritance. He makes us heirs forever of his great riches. This forms your identity right now and forever. And it gives you a whole different life. And the word that we've been using to describe this life is that this means that the Christian is now free. You're free from having to prove yourself as worthy to God. And you're free from having to prove yourself as worthy to other people. Which means you're free to have relationships that aren't driven by conceit or provoking or envy. You're free to have relationships that are driven by love and peace, kindness and patience. 
spiritual people treat each other this way. But watch out for the glory vacuum. Because it has a tendency to be turned on again. And so you ask yourself the question, am I a spiritual person? Or how might I grow spiritually even more than I have today? And you ask yourself a couple of diagnostic questions. Like, do I have the tendency to be provocative? Or do I have the tendency to be envious? Do I tend to pick fights or arguments with people? Or do I avoid confrontation altogether? One has provocation, the other one has the propensity to be envious. Do I regularly blow up or clam up? Do I regularly verbally seek attention from others? Provocative? Or do I quietly think I deserve more attention than I get? Envious. Paul warns against conceit and provoking and envy because that's not what freedom in Christ looks like. <laughs> and because we need each other. Spiritual maturity is displayed in how we interact with each other. Spiritual maturity is displayed. You want to be spiritual? It's displayed in how you interact with those around you. And so he gives us that warning. Then he gives us a series of encouragements of how to act. And the first of those encouragements we see in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that we restore one another from sin. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now notice a few things. First, he addresses this to you who are spiritual. It's not a sarcastic remark, nor is he creating a new category of people. He's simply saying that you who are maturing in the Lord, you are the ones who understand grace. You're the ones who understand God's mercy because you have received it. You're the ones who understand the struggle with sin because you used to live it. And you're the ones who understand the ongoing battle with sin because the flesh is real and sometimes you feel weak. You who are spiritual, you are keeping in step with the Spirit, handle those who are struggling in this certain way. And we get to a real common experience right here for all of us in the Christian life. What do you do when people who profess that Jesus is Lord still sin? And not even just sin occasionally, but are seemingly trapped in sin. The answer that Paul gives here is seek to restore them. Seek to restore them. That word restore means to return somebody to their previous condition. It means to heal them, in a sense. And there are some necessary, required, and specific things that happen in the process of restoring somebody. Somebody who's sinning. The first is obviously that the sin needs to be recognized by the person who's doing it and by the people around him or her. The second is that the sin needs to be confessed 
and repented of. There needs to be a genuine desire for change. The third is that the Christians need to forgive. (laughs) And the fourth is, after confession and forgiveness, then the person needs to be restored, brought back to their previous standing. And if we're honest, sometimes we don't always do this very well, do we? We might say that we almost never do this very well. It's got implications. Those kind of four steps of restoration have implications for your personal life and your personal relationships. It also has implications for your relationships in your small group or in your Sunday school class or in this church family as a whole. And Sometimes we do it well and sometimes we don't. I think there's probably three reasons why we might struggle in this area as Christians today. Reason number one is that sometimes we ignore ongoing sinful patterns, don't we? Maybe we don't have the courage to confront sin or consider it serious enough to address it. Philip Reichen uses this analogy and says that we're like medical students who see a bone fragment sticking out of the arm of a patient but are afraid to touch it. The bone is never set. The wound never heals. Sometimes Christians notice broken bones of sin but they never get past the diagnosis. It's kind of like we stand around and we say, wow, I'm sure glad that I don't have that broken bone. Did you see that thing? It's sticking way out. Oh, that injury is gross. I am so happy that it's not mine. That thing looks painful. And we notice and we might even talk about it or gossip about it with others, but we don't offer any help. Perhaps maybe we think that it's not loving to address sin. We don't want to be viewed as mean or judgmental, and so if we just let it go, maybe it will go away. But if someone is ill with sin, and we avoid them, instead of having the courage to help them, then that's not showing love at all showing the opposite of love to somebody. I think another reason maybe why we don't do this so well is that sometimes we fail to recognize our own sin. I mean, after all, the power of sin is really strong, and it's easy to justify our actions in the midst of our own sense of hurt or our sense of need. We could tell countless stories of people who are very clearly uh, living in outward and ongoing sin, people who profess the Lord Jesus as their Lord, people who say, I believe in the power of the cross, people who say, I want to be with God forever, and yet at the very same time are, are engaging in ongoing habitual lifestyle so- types of sins. And in talking with them, you hear their hurt or their anguish or the difficulty of their marriage or their relationships or their stress at work. And all of those things serve to justify their sinful choices in such a way that they're almost blind to the fact that they're even sinning anymore because it's become part of their norm. And so the warning comes to them or the encouragement comes to them And they reject it outright. How dare you say I'm sinning? So the warning for each one of us in that is to be consistently on guard against sin and its power in our own lives. So we don't become the one that excuses our own sin. I think the third reason why we struggle with this 
and what Galatians chapter 6 gets to is that sometimes we're really quick to condemn people and offer no path or option for restoration. Watch out for the glory vacuum here. It holds you in a place of superiority. And it actually begins to find its way out in a sick and twisted delight in the shortcomings of others. If we're honest, some of us function really well in this place. We're quick to point out the shortcomings of everybody else around us. We're almost finding delight in those conversations. We would rather see people rebuked or punished than brought into the emergency room. We seem to forget that we too were once locked in the clutches of sin and needed God's grace. We seem to forget that the struggle for sin in our own life is still very, very real and we still need God's grace. And here we're reminded that part of our growth as an individual, part of our growth as a church, part of our growth as a community is to be loving and gentle, not excusing sin, but tenderly coming along the one, alongside the one who struggles, that brother or sister, and working toward rehabilitation. Martin Luther was not known to be a gentle man. If you read any of his commentaries or particular letters back and forth between the Pope, you'll see that to be true. But when instructing a pastor to help a fallen brother. This is what he said. He said, run unto him. And reaching your hand, raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. Spiritual people do that. And your spiritual maturity is shown and how you interact with the people around you. Another way that spiritual people show that interaction is found in verse 2 and on. And that's you become a burden bearer. You can start to see how all these things are coming together. Let's read verse 2 again. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something, he's nothing. when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. It's a little difficult to understand at the end. We'll get there in just a second. But you see how these things are starting to come together, right? He's saying um, don't think too highly of yourself right here, just like he just said a moment ago. Don't be conceited. He said restore the one gently who's been sinning, just like he says bear one another's burdens as in the Lord. Spiritual maturity is displayed when you start to think about these things together. How do you understand grace and sin and repentance and bearing one another's burdens and gentleness with one another and your own image of self and glory and conceit and the like? Sounds like he's talking about your life. Sounds like he's actually saying this is how spiritual people live with all the interactions around them. And so to bear one another's burden seems like it's becoming increasingly difficult today. I don't know about you in, in your circles, but everyone's really busy. 
Some of us really value our privacy quite highly. Perhaps we don't view the Christians around us as really needing us. Or maybe we're too scared to ask. But bearing burdens of others, it says, fulfills the law of Christ. How does it do that? It does that because bearing burdens is an ultimate expression of self-sacrificial love. You gain very little for yourself when you bear the difficulties of other people. Except for mirroring the Lord Jesus, who sacrificed everything for you. Nevertheless, you see this again and again. Galatians chapter 5, serve one another in love. Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 15, Jesus says, greater love, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And now Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To be a burden bearer for another person, a person must get really close to the one who's struggling. Like side by side, almost walking in their shoes so close that you can smell the difficulty. So close that you can probably even feel it. And the idea of bearing that burden together is that your shoulder gets right up next to theirs. And the heavy weight that rests upon them is slid over ever so slightly. And now it rests upon them and it rests upon you. But maybe not just you. Maybe not just two of you. Maybe three of you. Maybe not just three of you. Maybe ten of you. Maybe not just ten of you. Maybe a thousand of you. And the burden that is heavy and still produces pain, becomes significantly lightened when there's burden bearers to help along the way. We need each other. Sounds like in this life. But you see the disconnect, right? The disconnect is that if People can't bear your burden, or you can't bear the burden of somebody else if you don't really know them. It's pretty weird if I say, hey, John, I haven't talked to you for two years, but I'm going to help you bear your burden. John's going to say thanks, but no thanks. It highlights the vision for this new life in Christ, that there's a Christian community that you live with, that you engage with, that you serve the Lord with, that you worship with, and that you bear burdens with. <laughs> it's called your local church. It highlights the need to be a functioning, active, participatory person in the relationships with the Christians around you. And you might not feel like right now you need somebody to bear a burden that you have. Maybe you don't have that heavy of a burden. But I guarantee that someone else might need you to do it. And I guarantee that someday... You will need others to come alongside of you, to love you, to help you, to burden bear for you. It sounds like Paul is talking about a whole different kind of life that's marked by our interactions with each other. The last encouragement that we see is the encouragement to carry your own load. 
He ends in verse 5 with that. Each will have to bear his own load. Now that immediately might seem a bit contradictory to you. I mean, at first glance, we see how are we supposed to bear each other's burdens in one breath and the very next breath carry your own load? How do those things line up? Well, they're not actually contradictory to each other. They're actually just the flip side of the same coin. Because the heavy burden that he's talking about in verse 2, the word there is uh, indicated by freight. A, a heavy, overburdensome amount of freight. That's almost impossible for one person to carry. But the load that he's talking about here in verse 5, that's more like the weight of a backpack. And so the point is this, that there are times in life when the burden is so heavy that we need people around us to bear the burden. And there are other times in life, and maybe for many of us, much of life, where we need to take personal responsibility for our situations and our actions and walk in them in such a way that we're not always looking for the handouts of others. That we need to carry our own backpack. And that's why we see in Scripture again and again all these exhortations to work as unto the Lord and to provide for your family and to he who doesn't work doesn't eat and to avoid laziness and sloth in the Proverbs. If you've ever, ever been hiking with children in one of our many national parks and have them repeatedly ask you to carry their backpack when they are perfectly capable of doing it, you get the feeling here. And in doing so, in carrying your own load, you actually not only it's good for you, but it's also showing love to the people around you. This too is part of you showing spiritual maturity in how you interact with others. And so I wonder, how spiritual are you? How do you measure your spirituality? What are some of the ways that you want to grow to be even more spiritual in the year ahead? Who is someone in your life that has a burden that you can help to bear and fulfill the law of Christ? In his book, TechWise Family, Andy Crouch shares a touching story as it relates to technology and relationships, really our contemporary situation and relationships. And I close with it this morning. He says, a few years ago, I had the great gift of being invited into the bedroom of my friend, David Sachs, born in 1968, just like me, but brought to the end of his life by cancer that by the time it was discovered had erupted throughout his body. After a glorious and grace-filled year of life made possible by medical treatment, David's illness outran the drugs. And in his last days, he lay on his bed. His body was now unbearably thin and weak. David was intentionally celebrated over the years because he was an internationally known photographer. But he would never make another image. He had sent me countless texts over the years, but now he was beyond text messaging. He had created a Facebook group where he and his wife Angie chronicled the story of his cancer the diagnosis, the treatment, and all the ups and downs that followed. But he would never again update it. But he was still there. Still with us. Still able, just barely, to hear us praying and singing. Able in moments of lucidity to open his eyes, to take 
in the small group of family and friends gathered around his bed and to know that he was not alone. His brother brought a guitar and we sang several nights in a row. The technology was over. The easy everywhere dream had ended. Now we could only be here in our own vulnerable bodies, present to this immensely hard reality of a friend, a father, a son, and a husband dying. Over the bed was framed a rendering of David and Angie's wedding vows. It was one of the hardest places I have ever been. It was one of the most spiritual and holy places I have ever been. It was one of the best places I have ever been. We are meant to build this kind of life together. The kind of life that at the end is completely dependent upon one another. The kind of life that ultimately transcends and does not need the easy solutions of technology because it is caught up in something more true and more lasting than anything our technological world can invent. We are meant to die in one another's arms, surrounded by prayer and song, knowing beyond knowing that we are loved. We are meant for so much more than technology, so much more than technology can ever give us. Above all, the wisdom and courage that will never give us. We are meant to spur one another along on the way to a better life. The life that really is life. So why not beginning, begin living that life together right now? Let's pray. Father, the vision of a different kind of life because of the freedom that we have in Christ is compelling. It seems hard. It seems distant at times. But you give us your spirit to shape us into these types of people. And so we pray. Conform us all the more. Allow us to shed the things that bind and to embrace the things that prompt our growth. We want to be spiritual people. And may you receive glory as we interact with each other in this type of life. Amen.